This winter, food banks are expecting to give out an emergency food parcel every nine seconds. With thousands facing financial issues and redundancy during the global pandemic, food banks have seen an increase in families who are newly hungry and forced to use support services and claim benefits for the first time. In Cambridge, this is reflected by a 23% rise in the last year. There are concerns that many more families will struggle in post-lockdown recession. I'm Alison Taylor and this is Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality. Today I'm talking to Margaret Sainer, Chief Executive of Cambridge City Food Bank, about the immense pressure food banks are under and what can be done to address food insecurity. And to Gavin Shelton, founder of Community Farming Initiative CoFarm, about how creating a sustainable food supply may be part of the solution. But before I bring them in, let's hear from Jenny Martin. We caught up with her at Chesterton Methodist Church, the location of the food bank she's been volunteering at for over seven years. Jenny noticed the need for food banks rising sharply in the final few months of 2020. You know, some of the people we see are the kind of people who make life possible for the rest of us. She told us about a woman who came to use the food bank recently for the first time. She was a carer, changing her job, so she had to wait a month to be paid. She also had to change flat, and Cambridge prices are high, so she had to put down a big down payment, and that left her wiped out. So, welcome, Margaret. With its world-renowned university, Addenbrooke's Hospital, and its fast-growing, innovative businesses, Cambridge is a huge economic success story. Are people really going hungry here, and if so, why? Well, it's certainly true that people are going hungry. And if you think about it, the average salary in Cambridge, that's for people who are earning, is like 34000 a year. But the average rent for a three-bedroom house is around 1600 a month. And the average house price is over 440000 So people are just having to spend so much of their income on living in just their housing costs. And that doesn't leave them a lot for everything else that they need, you know, their, their food, their fuel, clothes, school, stuff for their kids. So I think that's the big problem is just that people's necessary expenditure and their, their incomes just don't meet up. But this isn't a new problem, is it, in that the, the food bank's been in Cambridge for 10 years or so, hasn't it? Tell me, tell me why it was established um, and why we still need it. It was established by three churches, um, St Paul's Church on Hills Road, um, Our Lady and English Martyrs on the corner of Hills Road and Lensfield Road and the C3 Church. And they wanted to do something about the hungry people in, in Cambridge and the surrounding area. But why is that still a problem today? Why do we still need it? Because by the time they've, they've paid their rent... They may be getting along absolutely fine and then something goes wrong and they've got nothing to fall back on. Their car's broken down or in the present situation they get furloughed or their zero hours contract stops because whatever they would normally be doing just isn't there anymore. Um, we try and be welcoming, we try and be friendly, we try and treat each person with respect. 
This is Christine. She runs the community fridge at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Arbury. So the community fridge is a little bit like a food bank, except that it's open access. We don't ask people to fill in forms before they come. And uh, we opened in response to the pandemic. We also spoke with Jacqueline, a user of the community fridge and a local dinner lady. When my children were at home, um, I found it really difficult money-wise and having to put food on the table because they didn't have the free school meals available because they're not at school, because the school was closed down. Vicar David Marr. Well, I, I think it was really disappointing that what is actually a relatively small amount of money, providing food through the holidays can make a huge difference. Many of these families, it is the only hot meal that they will be having during the day and really admire what Marcus has done. He's talking about the footballer Marcus Rashford, who's on a mission to eradicate childhood food poverty. What Marcus has done to encourage and inspire not only the government. What what has been great is that we have seen that local businesses have also stepped up. So even in half term here, we got the Steak and Honour, which is a brilliant restaurant in Cambridge, if you know it. And they came with their food van and parked up in our car park and provided about 100 free burgers and chips for families within this area, you know, in response to that. And that made a huge difference um, to, to our community. So it's great they've changed their minds and it's great that they're going to be helping out this Christmas, but it shouldn't really take a footballer to nudge someone's conscience, should it? Turning to you, Gavin, you're a sustainable development expert. You've travelled all over the world working with charities and social enterprises. Tell me about the poverty that you see in Cambridge compared with other cities in the UK or indeed in other countries. I think Cambridge has worn this fairly uncomfortable crown over the last couple of years at least of the most unequal city in the UK. The disparity between incomes is is very marked. In fact, Newsnight cited Cambridge as the most unequal city in Europe actually last year. So it's a significant disparity. But um, it's not unique in in being a place that has great uh, inequality. And I think that divide is actually kind of increasing between the rich and the poor in many parts of the world. Uh, Bangalore, for example, another city that we might compare with Cambridge in terms of it being a very high-growth technology sector, in drawing that particular comparison, uh, and everyone piling out of agriculture to take jobs, if they can, in the, in the digital industries, um, but lots of people being left behind with, um, with not very much at all. So I think it is, to some extent, a universal problem, but I think in Cambridge, poverty is quite well hidden. So that's something perhaps which um, this pandemic has kind of uh, laid bare in particular. But it's, it's very much, uh, as you say, been there for, for, for quite some time. And, um, you know, food insecurity in Cambridge has been an issue long before the pandemic. But the other thing I suppose to acknowledge is that the effects of poverty, wherever you feel them in the world, are, are universal. Malnutrition, poor educational attainment, anxiety, stress and depression and reduced life expectancy. You know, there's parts of Cambridge, the most affluent and the least affluent wards in Cambridge have around a 10-year life expectancy discrepancy between them, which is completely unacceptable in a, a modern city, I would argue. Has the pandemic just shone a light on something that was there already or is it has it made things considerably worse, do you think? The pandemic 
certainly has made things worse. It, inevitably, it has because of the impact it, it's had on, on the whole economy. Obviously, there are going to be some winners in that. Some companies have continued to grow very fast throughout the pandemic. But of course, there are also some real losers in that situation as well. And that's principally the service industries. So we're going to see certainly an even wider gulf, I think, emerging between um, those who have the most and those who have the least in, in our city. Even people who were making ends meet quite successfully prior to the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of people now who have slipped into a very financially precarious position. Let's hear what the head teacher of North Cambridge Academy, Sam Fox, thinks about the effect COVID has had on his pupils and their parents. Probably in the current times with COVID and some of the increase in disadvantage and opportunities that that has created, there's probably more challenges at this time than there ever have been before. North Cambridge Academy is located in Arbury, one of the most deprived areas in Cambridge where a lot of pupils rely on free school meals. We headed down to hear about a great initiative they have running every morning for the kids there. At North Cambridge Academy we run a breakfast club um, and have done so for the last six years now. So we would come here every morning early at eight o'clock and we would um, set everything up, we would talk to some of the children, we would just, you know, socialise and make sure that they all had a nice breakfast. That's Maisie, one of the student volunteers at the Magic Breakfast Club. It ranges from cereal to bagels and then there's smoothies and juices and then usually a bowl of fruit. I can come and have some breakfast and it fills me up and I've got energy for the rest of the day. I know it's controversial, but I get Marmite on my bagel. Sometimes they have porridges, which are quite nice. During lockdown, because no one could come into school and have their magic breakfast, it got sent to us by, now it's by Amazon, but the school uh, teachers used to drop it off to us. And I think that was really good. People that parents didn't get to work during lockdown, they got given food so they didn't have to worry about feeding each other. It just really shows how much the teachers do care about our well-being and not just the grades we get here. All of us require food and substance to be healthy and um, fit and strong and that puts you in a good position to learn and to take advantages of all the opportunities that, that come with learning and come with the school. Um, obviously for those young people that, that don't have access to a healthy diet, you're not in the position where you can access the learning as easy, access the sporting activities, access the music activities. So at the heart of it, young people need to be fed well to take advantage of all the opportunities that they have. This is the basic problem. If you're not fed well, you can't perform well at school. Through a willingness to be flexible and a single-minded focus on the needs of children in their care, North Cambridge Academy has been able to adapt well during the pandemic. Although COVID has clearly had a negative impact, Gavin, there were many problems with food poverty before anyone even heard the word hence why the Magic Breakfast Club was set up in the first place. How much weight should be put on COVID for our current situation? I think we, we can't blame the pandemic for everything. The Bennett Institute for Public Policy, actually a Cambridge-based institution, published some findings a couple of years ago that found that in 2017, around a quarter of adults in, uh, in the UK had experienced food insecurity at some point in that year. You know, that's a long time before the pandemic was ever on the horizon. So absolutely, it will compound matters and make things worse for people. But I think if we can look for a silver lining at all in any of this, um, it is perhaps that that hidden poverty has been 
exposed to a level where, you know, it's not going to be possible, I don't think, to sweep it back under the carpet again. You know, it's um, the inequality that, that not just in Cambridge, but right across the UK, is going to have to force policymakers, decision makers, all of us actually across society to, to rethink, well, what kind of society do we want coming out of this pandemic and how do we create it together? So, Margaret, why do you think we haven't managed to eradicate hunger in Cambridge over all of these years? What is it that's missing here and indeed in Bangalore that means that we can't close that gap and we can't help those people lift themselves out of of poverty? Well, I think some of it is the fact that people are struggling just to make ends meet. Most people who come to the food bank now are actually in work. Their reason for coming is is low income. And I think that's the problem. It's just that there isn't a real living wage that people are expected to, to, to pay. Obviously, you, you will always get the people who are um, just un- unable to, to budget. And that's one of the things that we have with the food bank and why we work with the agencies to make sure that people who come to us are getting support. Part of, of basic education for children is actually how do you budget how do you make your money go on the right things and just be able to to balance your your day-to-day needs yeah i agree paying the real living wage is vitally important can you tell us about fairbite it's an interesting slightly different potential solution so fairbite is a, a food club people get referred by some of the same sort of agencies that might refer them to the food bank um, the Children and Family Centres, City Council, Financial Inclusion Team, but also some of the organisations like Winter Comfort and um, Citizens Advice. They join up, pay £2 per visit. They can come once or twice a week, depending on the size of their family. The Fairbite shop is in Arbury Court and it operates just like a small shop. So when they come in, they pay their £2 and then they can choose items off the shelf some of the food is from the supermarket overstock. Some of it is from our own donated food. But it's all going to help people who are just need a bit of extra help. And because people can come in regularly, we get to know them. We get to know their families. We get a chance to just sort of have a chat and talk to them. And the important thing is that they, they, they get choice. So instead of just having to take what's in the food parcel um, if they know that actually they've got a big family and there's a big bag of pasta there, they can take that. If they know that they've got special dietary needs, so they want halal food or um, gluten-free or dairy-free, they can choose that. They can choose the items that they want instead of having to go through the parcel and take stuff out. But the important thing is that it's it's long-term support, whereas the food bank is actually only intended as an emergency food support. Well, that's certainly one possible solution. Gavin, you've got an exciting project going on as well. Can you tell us about it? Well, CoFarm um, is a project that we have been in the process of getting off the ground, certainly a long, a long time prior to the pandemic. We spent March of 2019 to March 2020 co-creating plans for Cambridge, Cambridge City's first community farm. Uh, which we did in collaboration with about 300 members of the local community, first of all asking them whether they wanted one, 
and also what it should look like, what it should feel like, how do people want to feel when they're there, and what we needed to provide in order to help them to feel that way. And I have to say, it sort of struck a, a real chord with so many people because I think for a number of reasons. One, because people love the idea of being involved in the production of their own food uh, and coming together to meet other people. These are the sort of main objectives of the project in some way to... to um, to enhance community cohesion by giving people the opportunity to to meet other people that they might not ordinarily socialise with in their communities. Um, food and farming used to, not so very long ago, form the very fabric of communities across the UK. Um, but I think that changed when we started to view food as a commodity rather than as a, uh, a basic universal um, right. So we're just really trying to find a, an optimal model for how you kind of put food and farming right back at the centre of communities again, partly because it helps people to manage their own health and well-being, both their mental health and their physical health from the, the process of just being involved in light horticultural activities with other people, but partly also because the food itself we're growing according to agroecological methods, so we don't use any chemical pesticides or fertilisers, which have a you know can have a, an impact on human health as well as degrading biodiversity and natural systems. So I guess we're just taking a very holistic approach to trying to embed farming back in communities again, and we're we're doing this on a, a little pilot site, um, a seven-acre site in Abbey Ward, and actually, funny enough. We had just been through this process of designing with a local architects firm as well, RH Partnership Architects, a really compelling design for the farm that enables everyone to participate and uh, to make it very accessible for everyone, no matter what your, your needs are. But then, of course, we went straight into uh, a lockdown after our last community consultation event while, while the community had just signed off on all of the, the, the plans for their farm. So... We just took the decision to go for it this year. We got onto the ground a bit later than we had anticipated because of the pandemic. So it's a two-acre zone where we're sort of very efficiently, very productively growing, organically growing produce. And we've had about 180, about 180 volunteers involved in that process, coming to the farm, spending time with each other, which has been a, a real, you know, great outlet for lots of people who perhaps don't have growing space at home or don't have a garden at home don't have access to green space so it's really helped people to manage their health in a way that we we thought it would in any case but actually you know the pandemic certainly made it more valuable to people we've just had our harvest data come through we've grown four and a half tons of fresh produce which we've donated to eight food hubs, emergency food hubs around the city, but valued at around about £20,000 of really high quality produce, just from actually a, around um, 0.6 of an acre of the site. So we've only cultivated parts of it and uh, next year we can expect to at least double that. Remember Vicar David Marr from earlier in the episode? He told us about an idea that's been floating to enable better distribution of food around Cambridge that Gavin's co-farm could potentially be part of. There is this idea of having a hub, a warehouse, 
where we can store food in the north of Cambridge so that we can have access to all the different hubs and enable that out. If that's, that could happen, that would make a huge difference. It takes quite a number of volunteers to go get the food from individual supermarkets. If our, all that could be gathered into one space and then spread out through the community to those people who are in need, then that would be brilliant. And that sort of support really helps us because we're able on the ground to meet the people we know who's in need. We have relationships and we engage with people in the community all of the time. We have that. We just don't have the, the, the backup and the, the sort of resources behind us to enable it to happen consistently all the time. Pandemic has been brilliant because people have been incredibly generous and really come out of a system to help and, and support us. It's how we maintain that and foster that goodwill and continue to deliver because what we do know and we're absolutely convinced is this isn't going to happen this isn't going to stop when the pandemic stops it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better and how we help and support and get alongside people together as a city i think is really really important gavin Margaret was talking about the real living wage. If we had the real living wage, wouldn't that mean that there wasn't a need for initiatives like CoFarm? We are not only about addressing food insecurity and food poverty. We made the decision to donate everything to emergency food hubs and, and food banks this year because of uh, extenuating circumstances around the pandemic. But, you know, we, we are also a, a, a biodiversity conservation charity and you know we're, we're about sustainable development in its broadest sense so it, it wouldn't negate the need for co-farm because we still need to um, we still need to farm in harmony with nature um, but just drilling into the real living wage I mean I, you know I have a kind of perhaps a different view about the real living wage in that I certainly think the real living wage is, is better than being paid less than the real living wage I think it's certainly a step in the right direction for people who might be being exploited and paid less than that. So, no, I don't think it would be the answer. I think we should move to a system of basic universal income, actually, which has proved to be very successful in many of the pilots that have been conducted around around basic universal income around the world. Some really compelling case studies, and it, and it works where it's implemented well. Governments have already shown us as well that they're capable of mobilising vast amounts of capital when it's needed in times of crisis, as demonstrated over the past months, you know, to, to implement a system like that, I think, which would give everyone basically that level of income, which is probably about equivalent to the real living wage, full-time equivalent, just as a basic starting point. You know, it's been shown that it, it, it uh, reduces the amount of stress that people feel about their situation, which obviously impacts your health very dramatically. It enables people to actually take a, a few kind of financial risks. So if you've been thinking about starting that business or investing in your education or retraining perhaps all of those things, you know it's there, it's basic income and it's available to you. But I'm not criticising the real living wage in any way. I think it's a good thing to bring everyone up to that if they're not already. But I think we need to go a lot further as well and think more radically about it. Margaret, tell me about what else the Cambridge City Food Bank is, is doing. So we're working in um, conjunction with the Red Hen Group up in, in King's Hages and we're running some cookery classes during the pandemic, we had to stop that and we actually worked out how to run them online. 
But the important thing with them is that they're taking basic ingredients and helping people to make food for their families. You know, often kids are much happier to eat when they've helped prepare the food. The vegetables stop being something really strange and it starts being this lovely thing that you've, you've cooked. Gavin, tell me about the future of CoFarm then. What do you see? How do you envisage that continuing sustainably in, in Cambridge but also further afield? Well, the immediate future for, for CoFarm in Cambridge looks like us um, continuing to implement the plans that the community have co-created for their pilot farm in Abbey, for their for the Barnwell Road farm. Um, so there's some really exciting features of that which um, people want to implement. So, you know, we're going to put in place some wildlife ponds for biodiversity, for example. We're planting up a, uh, an orchard this winter, um, thanks to the support of uh, a Cambridge Water Grant from their Pebble Fund, a biodiversity fund which will also help to you know, increase food security in the area as the orchard becomes established and productive. We're going to implement a community barn structure on the site as well that the community said they really wanted a place to come together and, and shelter and socialise. And, and actually, ironically, it's a kind of an open-sided barn structure, so quite COVID secure as well. And the, the brilliant work that Margaret's been doing as well around cookery classes and things, that's something that very much people said they wanted to do on the farm as well. So, you know, we can take food directly from the ground, wash it uh, and prepare it and be producing delicious meals from it in minutes. So those are all things that are going to happen in the sort of immediate future. But we're also working with a, a number of research partners as well. So University of Essex are working with us on the monitoring the sort of community cohesion impacts of co-farming. Does it really bring people together? Does it, does it do what we're hoping it will do well? And researchers around health and well-being and biodiversity conservation NGOs as well who can help us to evaluate, is it actually driving biodiversity up on our sites as well? We know anecdotally it is because the place has been buzzing with wild pollinators because of all the cover crops and things that we've been putting in. But um, we need to sort of measure that quite forensically, I think, actually, to demonstrate that you can create real value across all parts of the value chain, you know, both for wildlife, for biodiversity, and for people's health and well-being. So we're taking all of that research methodology and sort of distilling all of the knowledge and building out a platform that will enable us to scale co-farming to communities across the UK. Our, our vision being to try and have at least one in every local authority across the UK by 2030, which is when we need to have achieved, as you know, the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Margaret and Gavin, that's been Absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm now going to turn to the Lord Lieutenant of Cambridge, Julie Spence, who will give us her final thoughts on this issue. Well, thank you, Alison. For me, food is the lifeblood. If you're hungry, you can't concentrate, you can't learn, you can't engage. And if you're a child, you may become disruptive or withdrawn or irritable. You then don't concentrate in class and you lose the life chances that education will bring to enable you to move out of poverty and become socially mobile. So the fact that we live in a city where we can see food poverty is for many, and for me in particular, deeply upsetting. So we do need to make sure that we come together as a city to enable people to 
support their families and to ensure that the future of our city is safe in the hands of the young people and that they do get a chance at education. It is about having things like a living wage, but we have to ensure that people have the skills to actually manage their budgets. It's about working with people to enable them to have the best life chances they can. And people don't want handouts. They want to have a hand to help them get up the ladder. They don't want to be pushed down and feel that you're doing it too, you're doing it with instead. Come on, Cambridge, as long as we can all work together, that's private businesses, public sector, charity and community sectors. If we do work together, we really can eradicate food poverty. We really can ensure that people have the life chances that they deserve. And we really can ensure that we have skilled communities who really can make the most of everything that they are offered. And that's got to be the important goal. So can I thank everyone who's contributed to this episode of Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality? Margaret Sainer, CEO of Cambridge City Food Bank. Gavin Shelton, founder of CoFarm. Jenny Martin, volunteer at the Food Bank at Chester the Methodist Church. Christine Osborne, organiser of the Community Fridge in Arbury. Vicar David Marr from the Church of the Good Shepherd. Sam Fox, principal at North Cambridge Academy. Maisie and her student colleagues at the Magic Breakfast Club at North Cambridge Academy. And a big thanks to the team at Conscious Communications for bringing this all together. If you'd like to be a contributor on a future series of Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality, please contact Alison Taylor at Conscious Communications on info at consciouscoms.com. We believe the messages around reducing inequality in this episode are important, so please help us spread them far and wide by sharing this show with your network. Finally, if you want to be part of Cambridge 2030 or simply find out more, head over to cambridge2030.org and register your interest. Come on, Cambridge. Together, we can make a real difference and have a city to be proud of.